0: This podcast is brought to you in part by Hallow, the number one Catholic prayer and meditation app. Grow closer to God through Hallow's over 500 audio-guided contemplative prayers, including the Daily Examine and Lexio Divina. To download, head to hallow.com forward slash Jesuitical. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young hip and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis,
1: the last young host <laughs> on the show. This is—I uh, I
0: knew this was coming. <laughs>
1: yeah, hi, we are certainly still a hip and lay uh, podcast, but. Somebody's got a big birthday coming up this week, which I think uh, puts in the question our our young youngness.
0: Yeah, I've been wondering whether it's time to adjust the intro. Well,
1: all all (laughs) that is to say, happy birthday.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Yes, I am. I am actually excited to be turning 30 on saturday and becoming a senior host i think that means i can basically veto anything you say at this point
1: (laughs) well you you know what they say about once you know once you're 30 you up up until you're 30 you could still be like this you're a promising Mm. podcast host you're a promising (laughs) member of the catholic media but i think once you once you're 30 you kind of just are what you are so Uh, congrats (laughs) Because I think it's okay. pretty good. Yeah,
0: but, I never, yeah. I made never made yeah. one of those thirty under thirty lists, but you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> there's still time. If someone would like to put out a a, a list to include Ashley um, before this be Saturday, uh, yeah, it'd be a good birthday present. Um, but you know, as far as presents go on this podcast, we have decided to uh, let you decide what we're drinking this week, um, and so. I will ask you, Ashley, uh, what's on tap?
0: I think it will come as a surprise to no one that my choice is bourbon. Um, but since it's a birthday bourbon, I'm gonna go up for my usual Jack Daniels and have my favorite, which is Bullet. So,
1: Not only that, but we're having a shot, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this is the first time on the pod we've taken a shot. Yeah. Normally we sip yeah, throughout the show. So this
0: should be interesting.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, if there was ever a time for it, uh, all right, I've got mine poured. Is yours ready, ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, well, Ashley, cheers to you and all that you bring to um, our friendship, our show, um, to the Catholic media. Um, I'm so I'm proud to be in this work with you, and congratulations for making it 30 years on this world.
0: There we go. Cheers. Cheers to you. Woo! Oh, all right. <laughs>
1: Okay, ready to talk about some stuff? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my goodness.
0: Uh, Who are we talking to this week, Zach?
1: So this week we're talking to Professor Anthea Butler, who is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, so she is a a frequent commentator on um, religion and politics. She has a deep historical knowledge, not only of the Catholic Church in the U.S., but the evangelical movement. She's actually writing a book um, as we speak about evangelicals and racism, uh, a topic that has been uh, um, of a lot of concern around the... Election of President Trump.
1: Yeah, and while we don't necessarily, we sort of talk around the election quite a bit, but we should say that she's also national co-chair of Catholics for Biden.
0: Yeah, no, we didn't get into that, and I have so many more questions for her. So we'll have to have her back on. But uh, it was a, it was an enlightening uh, and and hard hitting conversation, I would say.
1: Yeah, uh, like you said, we could have talked, I think, for three hours. Um, so we were trying to hit as many topics as possible. But I think, uh, yeah, buckle in, listeners. Uh, because it's going to be a wild ride.
0: But first, Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic News of the Week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach?
1: So our first story is about what a lot of people are talking about this week, which is the Supreme Court. Uh, As we record, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg lies in repose at the Supreme Court, and come Friday, she will become the first woman to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol. And across the country, Americans have been grieving the loss of a feminist hero and a cultural icon.
0: Yeah, I remember hearing that news that she would be the first woman to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol, and being kind of like surprised, <laughs> like, mm-hmm, and it, it just like goes to show what a trailblazer she really was. Um, and I know she she means a lot to a lot of uh, young women, even young girls who looked up to her as as a um, a model of of what you can achieve in the United States. Um, but that said, uh, <laughs> just hours after uh, after her death, the the partisan battle lines were were pitched um, over her replacement. Um, you know, so she was a on the Supreme Court after her death. There's a ninth seat open, which President Trump has the option to fill and the Senate might be able to approve his nomination.
1: Yeah. And it's it's it sounds like they're they're certainly going to try and get this uh Seat filled before Election Day. Um, And right now, the two frontrunners that people are talking about for the court are, and this is of interest to, I guess, all Americans, but particularly listeners of this podcast. The two frontrunners are both Catholic women. Uh, First, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Barbara Lagoa.
0: Right. So they're both uh, federal appellate court judges um, appointed under Donald Trump. Um, And if either of them were confirmed, there would be six Catholics. The Supreme Court. So before Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, the breakdown was five Catholics, three Jewish justices, plus Neil Gorsuch, who was raised Catholic but attends an Episcopal church. Um, So if either of these nominees go through, there would be a very clear Catholic dominance on this court, which is kind of (laughs) crazy.
1: Yeah, it is. And so we thought we would just take a little bit and break down why our Catholics uh, making up such a huge majority on the Supreme Court and we're gonna do our best to explain this and you know some of this is an accident of history but there are some trends that we could point to to kind of explain this a little bit
0: yeah and first we should say it wasn't always the case that like there's a reason why we're talking about it now because it's 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 not the norm um you know historically the Supreme Court has been dominated by white Protestant males and um, up until the 20th century, there were only three Catholics on the court, and it was kind of traditional up until, you know, kind of the, the 1980s for there to be like one, quote unquote, Catholic seat um, that was kind of preserved for for that token Catholic on the court. Now there have been 14 in total and th- seven of those 14 have been appointed in the last 35 years.
1: Yeah, and historians sort of point to just generic anti-Catholic bias in the country, uh, explaining their absence uh, from much of the court's history. But as far as what makes up this, like, sudden overrepresentation right now, um, that is where, you know, we start to speculate a little bit. But there are some ideas that people have. One is that this history of discrimination might have inspired Catholics to pursue legal careers as a way of ensuring their rights in this country where they were starting to make a foothold.
0: Right. And there's also some talk about how there's something inherent about um, Catholic Theology that's more amenable to getting involved in legal careers. Um, Richard Dorflinger, who's a fellow at the University of Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture, said in an interview with America that for for Protestants there's a there's a very clear divide between the city of God and the city of man, and they might be more reluctant to pursue legal careers because it kind of you kind of have to like see them as in some way intertwined, which with Catholicism does, that it kind of provides that bridge between the principles of our constitution, uh, natural law, and and Catholic social teaching.
1: Right. And with uh without getting into the the Catholic Twitter I word integralism, uh, I, I, I do want to ask, do we think this matters that there might be six Catholics on the Supreme Court? Is there a, a Catholic way of interpreting the law? Should we care as is Catholics about this type of representation?
0: Yeah, I would say. I mean, just like personally, I am not like immune from the kind of like rooting for the home team. That's like, yeah, like way to go, Catholics. Um, and and I it, I find some level of reassurance that there are people who you know I obviously probably don't agree with on many things, but like whose worldview like I understand and in, on some deep level trust because it's similar to mine that said i don't want catholics to like impose catholicism on the constitution i want them to be very good legal minds and able to do the job of interpreting the constitution and laws not you know superimposing their own values on on the cases that come
1: before them so you're saying you you sort of trust that there's like a catholic approach to at least answering ethical questions or critical reasoning that you would be like happy to see
0: yeah i guess that's fair and like i don't know but like we can see from the catholic justices that are on the court that like there's not like a single catholic approach you have someone like sonia sotomayor sure um and Clarence Thomas, who, you know, have very different approaches to the law. What I'm looking for in a justice first is not whether they're Catholic or not. It's it's how they interpret the Constitution. Um, and if they can, like, do that in a upstanding way and happen to be Catholic, I think that's all the better, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I will say there is, you know, obviously more to—there there's there are things to be wanted— especially in the realm of diversity in the Supreme Court beyond, uh, religious makeup. Um, Mm. but it is good to, I mean, like, as far as Catholics having, you know, we're sort of overrepresented at this point, but it is nice to see that we've, you know, overcome some of the anti-Catholic bias. It would be nice if as a country, we could extend that inclusivity to some other groups as well.
0: You mean people who didn't go to Harvard or Yale? (laughs)
1: That actually is like a huge thing. Like, it's, it's insane that the, there's this huge overrepresentation yeah. of two schools in particular that interpret the law for the majority of the country. And I think that is one problem among many. But I think we've, we could summarize by saying Catholic on the Supreme Court, it matters and it also doesn't. <laughs> What's our next story, Ashley?
0: Next, we're going to talk about the case of an Irish priest who was suspended from ministry and about what his case shows about what has and hasn't changed uh, in terms of the way that the Vatican disciplines priests under Pope Francis. Uh, and it's a kind of complicated uh, case, so we're going to just start by laying out the facts. Uh, it started in 2012 when Father Tony Flannery, a redemptorist priest in Ireland, was suspended from ministry for expressing support for women's ordination, uh, same-sex marriage, and other same-sex relations.
1: Yeah, and this story sort of came to a fore eight years- Years later, this past week, um, but in July, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, which is the Vatican office, which is charged with explaining and defending church teachings, uh, we'll be referring to it in this conversation as the as the CDF. It asked Father Flannery to sign a statement affirming church teaching as a precondition. To his returning to ministry.
0: Right. So, Father Flannery was asked to assent to church teaching on women's ordination, same sex unions, homosexual acts, and gender theory, something he had not, in fact, talked about prior to 2012
1: gender theory that is yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah um and father flannery uh refused to sign this statement uh and on september 16th made the document public calling the cdf process unjust um and by that he meant he had he had no direct communications with any uh cdf officials and didn't really have a chance to defend himself
1: yeah and during a press conference this week the prefect of the cdf um who is a Jesuit cardinal, we should say, uh, uh, Cardinal Lotteria, um, said it was the duty of the congregation to, quote, safeguard the faith and to point out something that is not in conformity with the faith, but saying it could be uh, a, quote, very unpleasant responsibility.
0: Right. So, so those are, there's, it's obviously a complicated case and there's more details, but I think. You know, for the purposes of this show, like, why should we care? Um, it, why is this maybe a problem? Like, doesn't the church have a duty to protect her teachings uh, when they might be distorted by priests? There are
1: a few things going on here, but the fir- the thing that sort of rankled me as a young Catholic the most was seeing the Vatican engage in tactics that seem like they came out of the mafia playbook, which is like. Uh, you you get a letter in the mail that's like, sign this document. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen to this document afterwards, by the way, um, that says you agree to these things and also just don't don't ever talk about these things. And then maybe we'll let you back into public ministry.
0: Don't you think that the mafia got it from the CDF? I think one of them was around first.
1: <laughs> no, it's true. And the CDF, we should say the the CDF is the sort of successor to the Vatican office that was literally called the Inquisition until 1908 um and and so i think you're right uh, but yeah there has been like this change of heart under pope francis about the way business gets done in the vatican uh, i think it's fair to say and that's actually what prompted the redemptorist in ireland to submit this case to the vatican saying like okay there's a different way of proceeding maybe we can you know ask for them to relook at father flannery's case and get him back into public ministry because he is a very well-known writer and commentator on religious topics in Ireland.
0: Right, and I think what they might have seen as a change in atmosphere is kind of like the space for... For dialogue and speaking boldly, speaking one's mind, that Pope Francis has encouraged in the entire church, but especially um, in the synods we've seen over the last few years. Like he tells people, like it's okay to criticize me, say it out loud, and and we can talk about it. Um, he would much prefer that to gossip, which he has called like the work of the devil. Um, so,
1: I mean, we just had <laughs> the last synod, the last synod, talking explicitly about ordaining women to the diaconate.
0: Yeah. So I think what Father Flannery maybe would like to see is 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 genuine conversation with with officials at the CDF, which he, he did not have. So CDF officials would go to his superior, um, and then the superior would communicate with Father Flannery, and there was never any actual conversation. And so that's true. But Father Flannery has also said that he he. It didn't sound like he left that much room for him changing his mind. I don't know if that matters. Um, what do you think? Like even if he wasn't going to change, what would the dialogue be worth it?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think you know, Father Flannery has said like he he hasn't really disagreed with the outcome. He thinks the authorities have the authority. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess that's the word I'm looking for to, you know, do something like this. But it's the process that he's found very, very jarring and unjust. Um, at the end of the day, Father Flannery is a priest and he's got to follow his own conscience, right? Like, and, and, and so by trying to sort of blackmail him and, or, or extort him in the signing this like this document. It, and you know they're not forcing him they're saying like look yeah
0: i was going to say what what's the coercion really
1: i mean no i guess there's not coercion going on but it, it it does feel like this thing happening in a in a room where no one else has access to and you know from the vatican's perspective i guess they want to respect privacy but i think there is a it is a realm where we can have disagreement or objections in the church or or or, or different ideas about church teaching and i think the vatican could have communicated that like father flannery is not alone among catholics especially in the western hemisphere and some of the some of the opinions he has and so it's in the church's interest to figure out a way to you know have him be a priest in good standing and have and be ministering to a people that also think like this that i think is a very difficult line to walk
0: yeah no there's there's such a strong tension there like something i value about the Catholic Church is the communion among uh, the entire globe of Catholics. And once you start, like, letting, like, dissenting priests here and there or uh, a national church going its own way, it, it, it does worry me. Um, so so I, I kind of felt for Cardinal Laudiera when he said it's an unpleasant responsibility because it is unpleasant, but I, I don't know. I guess I'm one of those Catholics that say you have to draw the line somewhere. Um. Right.
1: It's more, I guess, an issue of like, I don't, is there space for priests and theologians um, to be able to push and challenge and question, right? I think we do, and, and Father Flannery said he's not a theologian, but I think, you know, we need to create space in the church for theologians to be able to ask questions and doubt and interrogate. Because if Catholicism, you know, one of the things that I value about Catholicism is that it is not a fundamentalist religion. And it, it engages the mind and the intellect and uh, the signs of the times, as well as tradition that's come with it. And I I just, I think that a lot of people are looking at the CDF disciplining this priest in particular and saying, this isn't really, this doesn't feel right.
0: Yeah, which by coincidence, um, on the same day that Father Flannery made this CDF letter public, Uh, Pope Francis told a group of parents of LGBT children gathered at the Vatican um, that, quote, God loves your children as they are and the church loves your children as they are because they are children of God. So I think there's like this tension between, you know, what's the role of a pastor talking to parents about their children? um, and, And how do you go about that? And then what's the role of you know, the person <laughs> it, with the unpleasant duty of, of enforcing doctrine. Um, and so, yeah, I can imagine if you were a more casual observer of church affairs, being like looking at these two stories and thinking, you know, what is going on here?
1: If you are one of those people thinking, <laughs> what is going on here? Uh, we, we do want to plug Inside the Vatican this week, which, you know, Colleen and Jerry uh, have a great in-depth look at this story in particular. Jerry, Goes into depth about uh, a friend of his, uh, Father Jacques Dupuy, who's a Jesuit theologian, who also went through one of these sort of discipline uh, processes with the CDF and hit his own take on what the process has looked like, what it looks like now, and where he thinks it needs to go. So if you are interested in this topic, it's worthy of your attention as a young Catholic. Um, please go check out Inside the Vatican this week.
0: But before you jump over to Inside the Vatican, stick around for our conversation with Dr. Anthea Butler. Joining us from Philadelphia is Dr. Anthea Butler is an associate professor of religious studies and Africana studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to Jesuitical, Dr. Butler. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Which in uh, a time that I'm sure is chaotic on campus, so maybe maybe we can start there. How are things at, at Penn and with your classes in this in this crazy time to be teaching?
2: Well, you know, it's it's a strange time. We are actually all online. There are some students on campus for different reasons, but all of my class basically is on, on a screen and we're trying to connect the best way we can. But I think that it's tough for everybody right now, but we are making do with what we can do.
1: Yeah. Uh, maybe this the university is a good place to start. Uh, you organized, and I'm pretty sure I saw in a tweet like that I that happened in real time i remember seeing uh, a scholar strike yeah uh, after the Milwaukee Bucks uh, refused to take the court in an nba playoff game uh, could you tell us about what your your idea was behind that strike behind that tweet and then how it sort of evolved from there
2: yeah well you know i basically tweeted that because i thought it was great what the bucks had done to say they weren't going to play because of uh, the racial injustices that have been happening. And I'm like, well, why can't professors do this? A lot of us are asked every day to talk about um, issues of social justice, or as I do, teach it from a historical perspective. So for me, the issue was it's time for us to do something instead of just kind of sitting around. And a lot of people jumped on board and said, I'd be willing to do it, I'd be willing to do it. And Kevin Gannon, uh, who is my compatriot, Jumped in and said, I'd be willing to help you. And that's always the key is to have somebody that's willing to help you with everything. And that's how I got started. I really, I wasn't expecting as big of a response as we got, but I'm very gratified that we had a huge response.
0: And, and what did it look like on the day of the strike?
2: Really stressful. (laughs) You know, I I mean, because I think, you know, for me, it was important. What we were was basically sort of a a clearinghouse. We, you know, gave everybody the um, artwork that was done by, you know, volunteers. And we uh, asked people to give us videos, you know, about race and racism, different kinds of topics within this whole kind of milieu of everything. Right. And so we spent a lot of time getting those things up getting people organized, giving them things. So the day of, it was gratifying to see all the tweets and the social media and all the events that were happening around the country. And I think, you know, especially for me, it was really gratifying to see that it had jumped across the border and gone into Canada. And the Canadians had its two days of a scholar strike that started on the 10th and the 11th.
1: Now, I remember when I was an undergrad, and this wasn't that long ago, so 2014, 2015, around the time of the Michael Brown shooting and was involved in some protests there. And I remember that professors at the time, at least where I was, were sort of supportive, but with, you know, a mind of, I guess, this word of caution where they were sort of suspicious of, you know, students skipping out on educational time to protest something or stand mm-hmm. up for Black lives because they, they just felt that being in the classroom was, you know, a form of a form of protest in itself, I suppose. Um, how do you balance, you know, the vocation you have as an, as an academic? Do you, did you ha- have any pushback like that?
2: I, you know, e- <laughs> let me rephrase this for you because I think you need to understand where I'm coming from. What I do is teach the history of African-American religion and American religious history. So for me, these two things are not dissimilar. They're not separate. They are together. Mm -hmm. And they're together because you can't teach about what I teach, you know, like this semester I'm doing, you know, Religion from Civil Rights to Black Lives Matter, without getting into the meat and the heart of the matter and the problem in this country, which is racism. So, to ask me if I think that, you know, am I worried about this or whatever... This is what I do every day. This is not this is not, you know, something that I pause to do. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's not a pause for me. It is a call for me. That is a very different thing. And so what I want your listeners to understand is that those of us, especially those of us who teach in ethnic studies or you teach history or you you touch on any of these things, this is not anything different than what I would do in the classroom. It's the same thing. Except I took it out of the classroom and bought it into the world. And I think what's important to understand, and, you know, unfortunately for the professors that you had, they didn't have a buy-in because it doesn't affect them. Sure. I'm going to guess that they were white. You're correct. So, you know, this is where I'm going pu- to push a little harder, okay? Uh-huh. I- I'm going to guess that they were white. They don't have to worry about, you know, their son or their daughter walking outside and a policeman stopping them and being accused of something or somebody shooting into their house or being stopped on a traffic stop and not ever coming home again. They don't have to worry about that. But I do. And so it's not anything different than what I do in the classroom. And I'm going to make it even clearer and say it's not anything different than what I think the church calls us to do is to speak out against injustice.
0: Yeah. So when you took what you do out of the classroom and into the larger world with this scholar strike, um, was there a specific goal you're asking of the university in particular or other other like specific things you were asking for or were you just trying to well, I, bring this conversation yeah. to a larger audience?
2: I think it's, it's about two things. One is bringing a conversation to a larger audience. I will tell you that the University of Pennsylvania did not bug me. Which, you know, I'm grateful to them because they could have said, oh, you, why are you doing this? There's a couple of professors right now who are getting a lot of flack because they participated in the strike. What I wanted to do was raise awareness. And one of the byproducts of all this that I thought was very interesting uh, is the fact that so many professors were saying, I learned so much from this day. Now, that was an unintended consequence mm. because I was like, don't some of you notice already? But but clearly, you know, it, it became clear that colleagues needed to know about the history of racism in medieval studies or they needed to know about racism in technology or they needed to know about you know extrajudicial policing it it was pretty clear to me that while I was hoping that this would become a teach-in for students and using the word strike as a way to say not just strike as in we're going to quit doing work that day but strike as to strike out against this these, these evil things that are happening, these things that are happening that are bringing pain and suffering to people in this country that are, you know, causing us to be at upheaval. And so I think, you know, to, to ask me if, you know, what was I hoping for, whatever, I was hoping that people's awareness would be raised. I don't think you could be a, you know, a sentient human being and not understand what has been happening in this country for the last 400-plus change years or, you know, the last, you know, six years. If we want to start from Mike Brown, we could go even earlier than that and go back to Trayvon Martin and other people. I mean, you have to just see what's in front of you. And if you choose not to see, then that means that you are deliberately sticking your head in the sand.
1: Well, I think, to go more recently, like the past six months for a lot of white Americans who maybe were not paying attention to what's been happening for six years, for 400 years, um, there, it feels like there's been more awareness or at least there's been more media attention around uh, police violence and racism and protests against racial injustice. D- do you think that's accurate or where do you see us right now? You know, we're recording this September 22nd. Where do you see us right now in this, in this
2: battle? I see us at a precipice. I don't see us anywhere else. But I mean, I think that if you ignore what has happened in the last four or five months, you put COVID on top of that, you put uh, an election cycle that is probably one of the most contentious election cycles in history. And you put the economic stress that is already on people and what's going to happen to people. We're hanging by a thread. That's just the truth of it all. And I think that for people who still feel comfortable, I would ask them to search their consciousness and think, how long do you think you'll be able to remain comfortable?
1: When you say hanging on by a thread, you know, there's still, I guess there's not this like default optimism that things are going about to get better in your voice. No,
2: not at all. Not at all.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, when you think of people at a precipice, the the instinct is to take a step back, but I I don't think that's what you're saying. So what, what does... What's on the other side of, you know, that cliff, like best or worst case scenario?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I used to really like a lot of, uh, I'm going to couch it this way. I used to like a lot of crazy music in the 80s and the 90s. There was a song by Africa, Bombada, Speak of World Destruction. I think that some of these things are going away. I mean, you can't help but look and see the effects of, of climate change, the effects of the economy, the effects of white supremacy, the effects of you know indifference about two hundred thousand people, which was announced the day we're taping, have died from COVID nineteen in this country more than you know the Vietnam War and the Korean War, and a couple of wars combined. I think that you know there is a disintegration of structures, and I don't know where that leads us, but I do know that it's a moment for you know thinking people and people of faith to realize where we are. And to do more than just pray.
1: You know, speaking of the role of faith, I was rereading a column you wrote. I think it was after um, Philando Castile had been killed. And you said that you were done believing that religion would help black people get justice in America. Um, I'm wondering if you still feel that way. I guess, four years later?
2: Uh, actually, yeah, I do. And and I'll tell you why. The, the religion that we have right now is not going to help us. Because, you know, essentially, there's a difference between religion and faith. And religion, you know, forces you to do certain kinds of things and, and, and behave in ways that as long as you follow the rules, everything will be okay with you. But it's pretty clear that following the rules doesn't get you anywhere. When we have Catholic priests that have called Black Lives Matter an abomination and all kinds of other things, and then, you know, I I won't even go into the history of the church with African Americans in this country. I mean, why am I talking to you? I'm talking to you because I'm fifth-generation Catholic. My mother's from Louisiana. I'm probably Catholic because uh, of slavery. So when I say those kinds of things, I'm saying them in a historical context of I can see what this history is. That makes me think that it, religion doesn't do it.
1: Mm-hmm. So, if I'm hearing you right, there are elements in our faith that obviously give us the, the tools and the impetus to to fight racism. Absolutely, it's it's really that the the organized structures and the people doing it right now are just really not living up to that.
2: No, they're not. And 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 I will say that very clearly. And and let me put a finer point on it and say that it's not enough just to have faith and say that you want to do better. It requires change. I think that what we um, forget about a lot of times, especially, is that it, repentance means that you turn away. You can't simply be sorry about something. You have to do something about it. And doing is the part that everybody seems to fall down on.
0: Yeah. I, I've been experiencing this as a Catholic over the, pa- over the summer. Um, I'm a part of a parish that, you know, after the death of George Floyd, created a anti-racism task force. We've had uh, conversations in the parish, you know, where, where black parishioners talked about their experiences of racism in the church. Um, and I've, I found it to be a very powerful thing, but I, I struggle with like what it, what is it what's the next step. We as a parish struggle with that? Um, so yeah, I I I'm not going to ask you what the answer is, but um, I do see I do see pockets of the church struggling with it, and I'm wondering if 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 there are people or uh, specific groups within the Catholic Church that that you think stand out as as models of what of what the way forward could be?
2: You know, I, I I mean, I always think about Father Flager because he's somebody who, you know, has had a lot of controversy around him, but he's in the middle of things, you know? I think about um, people like him, or I think about my par- my old parish back in Los Angeles, St. Agatha's, that was in, you know, basically in what what used to be called South Central, but is now South LA, where people were doing, doing the work. And I think those are the people that I want to look at are the people who are in specific parishes i i mean i'm happy to tell you every place where i think that the work doesn't happen (laughs) you know
1: and maybe maybe a big picture where where are some of the like definite blind spots maybe in a in a systemic way
2: i'm going to be honest and say i think it's the bishops (laughs) i'm just going to be blunt about it and say that you know i think that we have a problem with the Mm -hmm. with the conference of catholic bishops obviously we've got Bishops who are different ends of the political spectrum, but I think that overall they would like to do something about racism. But as long as it cost them their relationship to the Republican Party, mm. and that's a that's a problem <laughs> because we we clearly have mm. you know a, a document that talks about you know faithful citizenship and voting, and I don't see some of the bishops caring about that document.
1: Say more about that. What 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 about faithful citizenship? Do you think that they're either ignoring or?
2: Well, I think that. I mean, I think, you know, you, you're talking to me as somebody who spends a lot of time and in, in whose next book is going to be about evangelicals and racism. But I think this alliance that Catholics have made with evangelicals have made them care less about the preferential option for the poor. Uh, it has made them look at the world in a different kind of way. And while they should be, you know, on the street every day, some of them anyway, and some of them already have been, you know, protesting against things that have happened with immigration and ICE, that pro-life is the only thing that they talk about. But there's more to life than just life in the womb. There's life after the womb. And, you know, I want to hear some more about people saying things like, it is wrong to give women who are immigrants that have been incarcerated, hysterectomies, without their consent, I keep thinking about what, what are all these encyclicals about? What are all these, you know, things that have been written, whether that was by John Paul II or Pope Francis or Pope Benedict XVI, I mean, I'm just thinking about the last three, right? Mm-hmm. What, what do all these things mean if we sell out the church over political activity to align ourselves with something that is that is not life-giving?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, some that's something we've been talking about on this show is what does it mean for the church to be political in a in a healthy way? because I think I think a lot of Catholics either feel like their their pastor or their bishop is either too political or not political enough. Um, and it sounds like you're not necessarily asking for church leadership to back away from politics, but more re-examine it, is that right?
2: Yes, re-examining and re-examining in the light of what church teachings are. I mean, I'm not a theologian, I I make that very clear to everybody, I'm I'm a historian, but I think the ways and the manner in which there is a stated norm about what you're supposed to do as a, you know, a faithful Catholic versus what the actuality is as a faithful Catholic in America are, you know, two different things, and we have a lot of battles between, you know, people who are middle-of-the-road Catholic, people who are liberal Catholics, and traditionalists, and I see that right now as one of the big, you know, I, I would say frisiers in this election cycle. And it- it's not just this election cycle. It's been a frisier probably, I'd say, since the-, the 80s and 90s, right? When this alliance came to be. This alliance of? Of Catholics and evangelicals, yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, I'm, I'm fascinated because I know more about the Catholic side and less about the evangelical side, um,
2: how, you, how you think that has
0: shaped the church's witness in the last 30 or 40 years?
2: I, I, I can tell you. I, I think it's it's made it more, you know, nationalistic and, and political, whereas, you know, we would say pray for the nation's leaders. You know, I keep thinking about um, Freedom Forum or something like that right that that would happen every year and it was sort of modeled after some of the things that evangelicals were doing to pray for the nation and all of that those kinds of things i think are are really part and parcel of this marriage if we go back to the 90s there was a statement called Catholics and Evangelicals Together about what they could agree on and what they you know what they didn't agree on right and I think that that was a start and that was a very promising thing. But what, what happened with that ecumenical document was sort of this, this hardening and they wanted to be towards a common mission. Well, we might not have the same common mission because of the, our theologies don't mesh up the same way.
0: Yeah. It is kind of wild to go from the, you know, Catholics being, like, doubted whether they could be loyal to the United States because they were papists to (laughs) having a strong nationalist strand.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, where we were not—I mean, you know, right here in the city of Philadelphia, Catholics and Protestants fought in the streets in the 1800s. Mm. It was pretty awful. I mean, Catholics were treated, you know, at times worse than Black people, especially Irish Catholics, right? So we have this history, but now— Everybody, most Catholics have forgotten that. And now they're ready to just, like, you know, join up with the same people that, like, you know, basically cracked open their heads.
1: Now, just just to be clear so no one, like, misunderstands this, it's not that ecumenism or reconciliation with that group is necessarily a bad
2: thing. No, it's not bad. It's not bad. But what happened was the, the, the ecumenical moment turned into a political alliance. Then that becomes something completely different. I mean, if you go back and think about it, it, one of my grad students will probably work on this at some point, Um, you know, this sort of history of of Catholics and voting and all this kind of stuff. You know, we think about where we are now where we have a Catholic candidate, Joe Biden, right? And one of the things that's really interesting is that he's not being explicitly attacked on his Catholicism. He's being explicitly attacked about how he's going to take God away from things, right? And that's crazy. I mean, you know, this is a man who crosses himself all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Prays the rosary, goes to Mass every Sunday, very faithful, right? right? But that's no different than what happened in the 60s when, you know, JFK was running. If people understood the kinds of things that happened to him, where, you know, Billy Graham basically, you know, conspired with Protestants to make sure that he wouldn't win. Didn't work. And so, I mean, this is where we could get to this. It could be a whole other hour Judge would with me talking about this. So I don't want to take us out in a ditch.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I, I do want to back up a little bit and just really sort of you're you're a you're a black Catholic scholar writing a book
2: about. White
1: Evangelicals. That's
2: right. I can tell you the title. It'll be out March 20, 2021. Go ahead and plug it right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm going to plug it right now. White Evangelical Racism, the Politics of Morality in America. So, what made you want to study white evangelicals? Well, because I went to an Evangelical Seminary. Ah. I went to Fuller Seminary. I did not do the normal thing that most Catholics do. and went to get my master's at a Catholic place before I went on to do my PhD. I went to Evangelical Seminary. Um, It was a very interesting experience. It actually was a time where I was away from the church and it actually it basically led me back to the church (laughs) if you could believe that so that that was that's what happened with me at evangelical seminary I came back to the catholic church
1: oh man I bet they're not putting that on their brochures
2: no probably not (laughs) but you know I've always had a baptismal certificate so when I see people on twitter say I'm not really catholic I'm sorry um yes I am
1: (laughs) (laughs) what was your what was your time like at the evangelical seminary why'd you want to study them even more I guess
2: Well, I think what made me want to study them even more is because they weren't studying themselves. I think what was interesting to me about it was two things. One was their sort of outlook and viewpoint on the world and this, this, I don't want to say very high boundaries. It's not that Catholics don't have high boundaries about who they are either, but we tend to be more... Um, Some of us anyway could be more culturally Catholic than we are, you know, theologically Catholic. I'll put it like that. For evangelicals, I think they really want to live this in, in every moment of their lives. And some of the ways in which they voted and how they thought about things were, you know, really interesting to me and so this kind of fascination with them really led into this book because essentially the kinds of histories that they wrote about themselves or have been writing about themselves have been very laudatory you know they you know especially for american evangelicals and the, but the strain of racism that has been there and you know granted we could talk about racism in the catholic church too yeah. I'm, I'm not leaving the catholic church out i think is a very important piece of where we find ourselves today in the current environment
0: so it sounds like you've been thinking about this a lot longer than many of the people who suddenly became fascinated with evangelicals because they formed the base of Trump supporters. Yeah. And I think you've written some before that like that, that didn't their support for him did not surprise you. No, I think for a lot of people, it was like, how how do these people who have traditionally cared so much mo- about character and personal morality supporting this man? Yeah. Um, why weren't you surprised?
2: I wasn't surprised because this is what they've been waiting for. They've always wanted, you know, somebody who was, A, very strong, B, who would save them from the losses that they had, i.e., you know, same-sex marriage, um, what they perceive to be growing rampant abortion, which isn't really quite the case, and and C, that there's always been this element of, of racial bias and, and evangelicalism, where if we're talking about, you know, uh, slavery to, you know, separate churches, right, Um, to the, you know, 60s and the civil rights movement, to the 70s and the ways in which, you know, evangelicalism didn't get started because people were afraid of Roe versus Wade. They were actually more upset about the the tax-exempt status being taken away from Bob Jones University. This is how evangelicals decided to rally because they did not want to integrate schools, And so forcing Bob Jones to accept African-American students and when they didn't, taking away their tax-exempt status was very upsetting to them. And so I talk about that in the book as this sort of catalyst of bringing them together to form the moral majority. And I think that we need to really think about, you know, Catholics have made this alliance, but it's been an alliance that also has a history That isn't quite the same kind of history that the Catholic Church has in America, but it's a good relationship to vote for certain kinds of things. It's like you got to hold your nose to be with certain people to get what you want.
1: What do you think the reception of that book is going to be? You know We've talked to on this show, at least, some evangelicals who I think would, you know, who already are probably at least aware and are ashamed of some of these things. Is there... I, I'm sort of projecting here. Is there like a generational divide? where I
2: don't think that's a projection. I think that's true. I think that a lot of people are going to be upset. I think the younger generation might be upset with me because they're going to be like, oh my God, is it this bad? And I'm going to go, yes, this is your history. And older evangelicals will just be hurt and upset because they're going to be like, but we thought you liked us. I'm like, I do like you. This is why I'm talking about you like this. You should be better. So I think it'll, it'll make a splash. I, I'm just not quite sure, you know, how people will want to deal, how, how deeply they will want to deal with the, the truth that stands in front of them. Let's put it like that.
1: Mm. Yeah. Speaking of history, you mentioned earlier that this, all, a number of events are sort of coming together. We're in the middle of this pandemic. People are taking to the streets, taking a closer look at racial injustice. There's this presidential election. Like people are calling this a historic time. Sort of taking a broader picture, is is there a moment or a period in our country's history that you know we, as the church, should be mindful of, or we could learn lessons from?
2: I mean, I think you know, for I, I think about for the church, there's probably you know several different inflection points. Some of them are still you know acting out. What is slavery? Obviously, I think about the Georgetown slavery project and all of that. Is that you know the Catholic Church has to reckon some in some way with that history that's a good start, but there needs to be more. So that's one. I think the second place to sort of think about that is is the civil rights movement. I'm teaching that class right now. And I think that we have forgotten the um, many ways in which Catholic priests and nuns were involved and Catholic lay people were involved in the civil rights movement and, and gave up their bodies, you know, to be beaten in the streets because of what was happening. But that meant a lot to people. And I think that we've forgotten that history. I think we've forgotten the history of Catholics and labor. I think that we've forgotten how much it was really important for Catholics to organize into unions. And union is kind of like a bad word now, but that gave people protection. That gave people wage protection and everything. And with an economy that's crashing, I would like to see that we would think more about that history and about what that might mean now in a time where people are going to be suffering greatly. And I think you know we should think about, and this could sound like a, a really strange thing to bring up, but I think it's really important. We we focused in so much on on Catholics and abortion or little sisters of the poor and everything else, but there's another kind of Catholic tradition too that I think could be really important during this time period, and that's the history of of Catholic hospitals and, and Catholic medical care and and providing you know assistance to people who are in need. And I think that because we have focused in so much on, you know, pro-life and all of that, we've forgotten that, you know, and we've lost a lot of Catholic hospitals and institutions that were the backbones of this country and and provided help and health for people. And I think that's a real loss.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the work you do to, to uncover the history where it's, uh, Ugly and where there are, are some things we can learn from um, and for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, I could have talked to you for like three hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, know. I know you're super busy. <laughs> Mindful so of your will, time. Yeah, we'll,
2: yeah. we'll close it here. I think this is going to be enough for everybody for 30 minutes. Uh, you have a lot to <laughs> yeah. we do
0: We do have one final question uh, for you that we ask all of our guests. Uh, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would they be and Why?
2: Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. But I'm going to give you the person that I've been thinking about today a lot, because I'm, I'm about to teach this section in my class, and I've, I've met him. And I think, you know, if there ever was anybody who was a saint, it, it probably was him. Uh, Reverend James Lawson, who was part of the Nashville sit-in movements, he just gave a very fiery um, eulogy at John Lewis's funeral. And I think that you know there's lots of people who've been involved in the civil rights movement, but he is really interesting for for what happened in Nashville for that sit-in movement for the work that he did afterwards. And you know basically he got kicked out of school back then. He was a, he was a student at Vanderbilt Divinity School and they where my alma mater is, and they kicked him out. So I'd say he is a modern day saint for me. Yeah.
0: All right, St. Lawson. Mm-hmm.
1: Pray for us. yes. Dr. Butler, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, I will just recommend your Twitter feed to people who sure are not already following that. But is there, uh, where where can people find that? And what else do you want to plug?
2: Today? Well, you can find me at Anthea Butler on Twitter. Um, I have a website, com, And, you know, you can find me on some op-ed pages sometimes. Awesome. All
0: right. And I hope we can have you back on when that book comes out.
1: Sure thing. All right. Great. Thanks so much.
2: Thank
0: you. All right. Now it's time for some housekeeping. Uh, what What do we have to talk about, Zach? You know,
1: this, there aren't many, you know, you being 30 is a milestone that we want to mark <laughs> at this time. But also, this is episode 150 of Jesuitical. Yeah. Uh, so we just wanted to say, name that, say Thank you to listeners, whether you've been around from episode 1, episode 5, episode 50, or episode 149. Uh, We're glad you're here. uh, (laughs) And thank you. We have a lot of fun making the show. We're so grateful for the community that it's created. And here's to 150 more.
0: Yeah. Sometimes too much fun.
1: (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Uh, although I think I would say another thirty years, but I I, uh, I really think we should probably yeah. hang it up before we're getting. No, we to gotta the 50s we gotta pass the
0: torch when we get to. I think like young adult ends at forty in the Catholic world, right?
1: Yeah, you can really stretch that for a while. <laughs> but um, so we're not going anywhere anytime soon. No, but hey, here's to 150.
0: Are we taking another shot?
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh my goodness, okay. no. Just uh, raising my empty glass, uh, I yes. suppose.
0: <laughs> All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God in our lives this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
1: I was really struggling this week. Um, I think, I don't know, I've said this before, but it still feels like there's just not a lot happening in life. I I know that there is. Um, and I was taking that the prayer and feeling frustrated and... Like, I didn't have anything to pray about or talk about, and I, I start to beat up on myself because, you know, there's still things going on, and it's my own human weakness that that I can't find anything for, you know, to talk to God about. But I, I came across this article in the Jesuit Post, and I, and I put it in our Facebook group, that, you know, sometimes boring prayer is exactly what we need, and it's good prayer. A lot of us who are go-getters will have a tendency to view our, our time in prayer as something that's productive or where there's dramatic things happening. And that's not necessarily what God wants or God is expecting all of the time. And that hit me like a ton of bricks when I read it today. And I sort of read that, put down my phone, went outside, looked at looked at the trees, fall, the leaves falling off of the tree. And was able to reach this point of consolation where, you know, I was able to say to God, like, look, I know it feels like there's not a lot happening. I know you're still at work. Thank you. Um, And that was my, that was my moment of consolation this week.
0: Yeah. I like that. As I reach old age, I have gotten into the habit of not being able to sleep between the hours of four and 6 (laughs) a.m. And so they've become my like go-to hour of boring prayer. (laughs) Mm. and but i i I had not thought about it as as an opportunity for such prayer until until now um it's a great it's a great article on the jesuit
1: post uh (laughs) it's by billy critchley Maynard, sj go Uh, check it out i put it in our facebook group
0: yeah i I hope my prayers are so boring it lets me go back to sleep
1: (laughs) (laughs) hey god you know you know why jesus uh slept in the boat with the apostles Mm, why because he was tired
0: is that like,
1: yeah, the, it's I, a dad joke. Yeah, it's not a theological reason? That's like reason. the
0: Catholic chicken and crossing the road joke.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. Ashley, what do you have this week?
0: Uh, laughing aside, uh, I guess I have a desolation. Um, so I have been slowly starting to go back to Mass. Um, and for the past two weekends, I signed up to be the lector at Mass. Um, and on Sunday, I was relaxing in the park with Zach and some other friends, and waited to the last minute to get on the train to get to mass to do the readings. And although I was only three minutes late, the priest had already started doing the readings in my stead because I was not there. Um, and I just like went into this like very desolating spiral of like, why am I here? Like, I should I don't know why I'm here. Like I because I in, in my discernment about whether to go back to mass in my own head, it was like, okay, I can justify going back to mass if I'm like doing a service to the community by lecturing when there are people who are, you know, at higher risk and aren't able to do something like that or whatever so this is like a gift I a unique gift I can bring to the church um so it's worth the risk of going to mass despite all of the um risks that are involved and then for me to just kind of like blow that off I was like really beating myself up and so there I was at mass and completely unable to listen to the readings being read by someone else, unable to listen to the homily just because I was like listening to that voice in my head um, saying like, you are not doing this for the right reason. Um, and instead of, you know, just like being present and t- like participating fully in the mass that I, I do want to be at. And so it was, it was just like hard. I- it was one of those times where I just like could not get myself out of that dark place. And so I don't know, I guess it was good if I'm like trying to find a silver lining, like it was good to have that. So like now I will be more intentional about why I'm deciding to go to mass in this time Um, instead of doing it out of habit or feeling like it's like a way to make up for (laughs) not praying at other times So it was kind of like a kick in a butt, maybe, that I needed.
1: (laughs) You know, as someone who's three minutes late for everything in their life, uh, it feels like this is a lot. This is unjust, (laughs) the amount of thinking you've done about being three minutes late. The
0: mask goes so fast when there's no music. I thought I could still get there in time.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, you did leave off an important part of the story.
0: Which which is that that, you told me so.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I told you you were going to be late.
0: Um, okay, the trains were a mess, which I also should have predicted because it's COVID times and everything's a mess. <laughs>
1: yeah. Anyway, I think you should put uh, not that we're in, we try to do these constellations and desolations without giving advice afterwards. You yeah. know, we want to give space for people to feel what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. But also, it's your birthday week. Give yeah. Yourself a break. Okay. <laughs> I think that's what God's t- probably telling you too.
0: Yeah. I, I missed that part, but thank you for <laughs> reminding me.
1: <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All right, read some credits, get us out of here, and let's go celebrate.
0: All right. Jesuitical is produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review.
1: And leave us a review. Seriously, if you're still listening to this and you haven't left us a review, I'm upset because our last review no. was like months ago and hmm. people aren't going to find the show unless you do that. So please yeah. leave us a review. But
0: only if it's a good one.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. if you're upset with the show, do not. do not yeah. engage.
0: <laughs> Judge is is production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.